0: Welcome back to the Feed the Ball Podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and my guest for Episode 57 is Trip Davis. Trip Davis came to golf design via an avenue surprisingly rare for architects, rare at least since the early days of C.B. McDonald, Walter Travis, and their like. Davis was, and remains, an accomplished amateur player, competing at the highest levels of the game, and reached the quarterfinals of the U.S. Mid-Amateur as recently as 2009. He was an all-Big 8 player at Oklahoma and helped the Sooners win the 1989 National Championship. After he graduated, he contemplated turning pro, but instead retained his amateur playing status and turned his attention to golf course architecture. I won't suggest that being an elite plus handicap player gives an architect any kind of design advantage, but it certainly informs the way one looks at the game and how golf holes and hazard arrangements are perceived and thus conceived. As such, Davis has an intuitive feel for strategy and how players need to think and play tactically to increase the odds of positive outcomes. He learned the design business coming up through the 1990s, and his career began to get hot at the same time golf course development did. He was especially active during the late 90s and into the 2000s, building new courses throughout Oklahoma and Texas primarily. With a completion of Old American near Dallas in 2010, Davis reached a personal artistic apex, just as golf development was entering its nadir. Old American is an ambitious homage to early 1900s American architecture, a wholly original design with an intense strategic skeleton and shapes and bunker forms that allude to golf from another time and place. Over the last decade, Davis, like most architects, has worked primarily in renovations and has completed gorgeous restorations at clubs like Oak Hills, a Tillinghast design in San Antonio, Herbert Strong's Engineers Country Club in New York, the Charles Banks-designed will Club, also in New York, Dick Wilson's Deepdale and Meadowbrook Club courses, both on Long Island, and most recently, Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, a Perry Maxwell, Alistair McKenzie design. When considering the work of an architect, especially active architects, we sometimes don't discuss how they grow. Not just how they evolve as designers over time, but how, during the course of their career, they usually become much more skilled and better at their specialty. You'll hear Tripp talk honestly about how he's worked hard to develop his sense of style and aesthetics, and how he feels his firm really started to find its sense of expression when he hired Jason Gold as his primary shaper. There's also lots of talk about Pete Dye, the role of strategy in design, and so much more. Tripp is a cool, thoughtful guy. And I know you'll get as much enjoyment out of getting to know him as I did. One quick note, Tripp and I begin our conversation talking about Colton Craig. He's the mysterious person that we're talking to when we begin our conversation. I wanted to point that out so there's no confusion. Colton is a young designer who worked with Davis for a number of years before going out on his own. If you want to hear more from Colton, you can listen to him on the Ice Golf Podcast episode 119, where he joins Rod Morey and Adrian Logue to discuss his career, his thoughts on design, and much more. So check out that episode if you haven't yet. So let's get into it. Here's Trip Davis.
1: He's A different kind of bird. He's he's definitely, um, you know, he's gonna. I think he'll be. I think he'll be fine. He's uh, he's got the you know the right mentality. smart kid. He'll be okay. But it's gonna be tough for him for a while, I think.
0: Yeah. So, for somebody getting into the business right now, what's the key to getting your foot in the door? I, I imagine it was quite different when you started your firm. I know it was quite different in the early nineties when you started off the the business was completely different. The economic landscape was completely different. What's the what would be the key right now for a young guy trying to get into this business? What would your advice be and what do they have to look out for?
1: That's a tough one. I, I'm not sure um, you know first of all I might try to dissuade them for wanting to get into the business.
0: Is that um, right? And,
1: you know, um Colton Craig is a unique guy and i think he was born to do this and i you know so i kind of realized that in him and thought well this is you know that's one of the reasons i hired him i thought uh he's he's gonna be really good at this someday and um uh, he's got a unique passion for it um and you pretty much just have to be in a in a mindset that you're gonna make it work no matter what and you never quit and uh i had that kind of mindset for whatever reason i don't know You know, I I think it was just gifted to me that this is what I'm meant to do and I'm going to do it and everything's going to be okay and I'll keep working at it and trying hard until um, I make it work. Um, You know, I didn't have a chance to go work for a big name or, you know, really um, get anything uh, under my wings before uh, I started on mine. And so I think for any golf course architect, this probably applies to a lot of entrepreneurs in general. You know, it's just um, you've got to have this mentality that this is what you were meant to do. Uh, it's going to work out. Um, I'm not going to quit.
0: Is it? Do you think it's a situation where, after you get established and you look back, you say to your younger self, "Wow, how did you? What were you thinking?" Because you probably didn't realize how hard off you had it, and because you were in it so far that you didn't realize how hard it was. And it's only b- upon reflection that you realize that. Uh, the difficulties were were quite significant. I mean, is that a thing that like you can almost have like blinders? You're like if you if you have such a belief, and you you get one project or two, you have such blinders on that you don't realize how how hard it is or, or what the odds are against you.
1: Well, I think uh, you know I, I I realized how difficult it might be. You know, and I um, I actually had a couple of job offers that I came really close to taking. <laughs> I actually came real close to, I mean, not real close, I was thinking about going back to law school, um, you know, and, and uh, I think one of the things that kept me going and kept me kind of striving forward is that I convinced myself I had other options, and, um, uh, you know, I tried to play professionally for a bit and realized uh, after about a year and a half of that that Um, that wasn't a great option. Um, and, um, so I think you, you know, the, looking back on it, um, you know, I was young. I didn't have any, uh, you know, great responsibility. Um, I wasn't married yet. Um, and actually I'll, I will say that when I got married and we had kids pretty quickly, that actually just made it to where I couldn't fail. And, um, um, uh, you know, I think that kind of spurred me to think, well, you know, this is going to work. I'm going to make it work.
0: At what point did you feel like you were firmly established in the architectural field?
1: Um, last week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you didn't um, say next week. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, Firmly established, you know, means that, yeah, uh, you know, that's I think that's another part of the entrepreneur spirit, Derek. Is um, I still don't, you know, feel one hundred percent comfortable. Um, yeah, I'm fifty-two years old. I've been doing this on my own for twenty-five years, and um, you know, and I still feel like I've got to go out and prove myself every time I, I do a job. And um, you know what? No matter what size it is, I just did a new putting green and, and rebuilt the driving range for one of our clients in Charlotte. Um, you know, hopefully we'll get to do a, a, a pretty good sized project there one day, but, um, but where I was there every week and I was there, you know, a week and a, you know, a day and a half, two days a week, um, while we were doing Oklahoma city, uh golf country club where I was there, you know, two, three, four days a week. And so in doing that project, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've got to make sure this is done well. I got to prove myself, and and I think that's a good thing to have on your side to be able to feel like you're having to constantly, you know, prove yourself um, that that you're not quite there yet. That you you know you're always having to. Um, I always think that the next project is going to come because I did the last one well, and um, I think that's kind of work ethic you got to have.
0: Yeah, it seems like there might be. A, a distinction to be made between proving yourself, which would be a, a healthy impulse, uh, as you just uh-huh. said, to to always make sure that your last job is your best job, if that's possible, versus feeling confident and competent, and or having self doubt. Uh-huh. Do you do you ever feel self doubt about what you're not what you're doing? I'm sure you feel confident about that, but just sort of like your overall place in the in the business and in your the, your standing as a Golf course architect.
1: Um, I, you know it. it um, um, I always kind of have this feeling like uh, um, I'm not so sure, you know, that uh, I'm doing it as well as I could. You know, I'm always kind of questioning myself, which I think is healthy uh, to an extent. You know, I think confidence is healthy to an extent. Um, it's all in balance because you can. Uh, if you get overconfident um, and you feel like what you're doing is right no matter what and uh, you know you're gonna be unwilling to listen to the things around you listen to your clients uh, and um, uh, I think you're gonna miss a lot of things that you could have done better and then being you know unhealthy un- unconfident has not got either because you can't, you know you can't you can't make a decision. So, I think there's a healthy side of it on both ends. And, and um, uh, you know, I liken it to thinking, well, at, at what point did you know that you knew what you were doing? Is kind of the way that I would go. Same question you're asking. And, um, and in architecture, in golf course architecture especially, it kind of comes across in two different ways, and maybe even three. One is, uh, are you competent? Do you, you know what you're doing from a technical, functional perspective? Mm-hmm. You know, are you. Can you build something, you know, do you know how to be able to make adaptions? And that's what I tell young architects, you know, that uh, uh, Colton being one example of um, it's one thing to know the spec for how to build a green. It's another thing to know how to, to know why those specs are the way they are so that you can make adaptions and you can make changes. You know, like if the sand, if you if you can't find the sand that meets spec, you know, how do you adapt a USGA spec or the green spec? Uh, the way that a green functions uh, to work properly. You know, if you're running into a situation where, you know, whatever it may be, you need to understand why things are the way that you are, uh, not just what. You can't just look through your spec book and expect everything to work out functionally. So that's one thing. And I think that's something I'm, I'm very confident in. Um, from an artistic standpoint, um, I think you... I think that's something that's always ever changing. I think every artist throughout their careers, most of them have walked or they have, you know, changed the way they see things. And so, I think that's always going to change. But you know, there's a competency that you get, obviously, as an art as an artist, and uh, you have the ability to do things that uh, um, are going to be beautiful to look at, beautiful to play through, and so forth. And uh, that's probably the hardest I had to, you know, get to, was where I felt like we were doing work, uh artistically, stylistically, was uh, really good, and we were able to adapt to the environment, and, you know, we weren't just doing the same thing over and over and over again, and, you know, we were able to uh, stretch ourselves artistically uh, to where we um, tried different things, but in trying them, we knew it was going to be good. We just didn't know exactly how it would manifest itself. Um, and then the other thing from the, you know, from a, a uh, and when you're doing golf course architecture, what's unique to that is are you designing something that's fun to play, that's good to play, um, and strategically? And, um, I think I've always had pretty good confidence in that because I played the game at a fairly high level and, and, uh, that's where I came at golf architecture from the beginning. I didn't understand the function. Uh, I wasn't an accomplished artist, but I knew how to play the game. I knew how I wanted to build something
0: that would be fun to play. Do you consider yourself an artistic person or did you consider yourself an artistic person when you were getting into the field?
1: I don't think so. No, I, I, you know, um, I have, I have learned that I am artistic, um, and my two daughters will prove that out because my wife doesn't have one artistic bone in her body. <laughs> and um, she's smart as a whip, but she knows numbers. And she's actually kind of gotten better <laughs> with it, too. But my, my both of my daughters are uh, accomplished artists. And uh, um, and I've learned, too. I mean, I've you know, sketched. I, that was one of the things that I started doing was doing sketchbooks and, you know, just trying to learn. That side of it, and then exposing yourself to great art um, is is another thing. You know, to where you um, you kind of copy it a little bit. You copy the, you try to learn how they uh, you know, did the way they did things. And you know, and I pick brains. And um, you know, I I think you know we've got a lot of modern um, architect golf course architects that are extraordinarily good at, at the art side of what they do. And uh, we had some really good ones back in the past. I mean, I, in redoing Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, one of the things we learned is how good Maxwell was at the little things that made a golf course great artistically even. And um, um, just the, you know, the little bumps and rolls that he would put into fairways and around greens and um, you know, were, were so well done that they had to have been hand trapped. And that's the other side of it, too, is um, you're not going to be a great artist unless you put a lot of time in it. And um, you can't be a great artist, you know, on a golf course site, you know, if you're there once every two, three weeks. You just can't do it. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of some of the things I've learned.
0: Well, how important is it to be a successful golf course architect? How important is it to have a strong... Artistic side of you, or, or a strong sense of the aesthetic. You just said it can be learned. You've learned and become better at that. D- but does that give you an advantage to begin with if that's how you see landscapes naturally? And, be, you know, that instinct to produce an artistic vision across a landscape is that an advantage inherently?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, you. Know, as, uh, you
0: anything you do, in
1: my opinion, is learned in some measure. I think you have um, some innate abilities to do different things, but you still have to learn um, And so one of the things you often hear, Derek, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot from Southwest Architects, is having a good eye. And uh, um, I think some of that is innate and some of it is learned. I think, you know, how it applies and how you're able to adapt things is learned. You know, the ability to see something and know that it either fits or doesn't is um I think you know in large measure innate. I think it's something that, you know, you are born with. Um a great example of that is my daughter, my oldest daughter who's in a fourth year lawchester school at Oklahoma right now. She um uh, went up to Long Island and and uh, my shaper Jason and I this is actually the first job we worked on when he was an employee of mine, uh, we had done a couple projects together when he was a subcontractor. But uh, 2006, I think it was, we were doing some work on Long Island, and Mary and my whole family came up up there that weekend. And and uh, well, Mary was riding around with us. She loved to go ride around and you know look at things. And so we came up to this bunker, and we had etched it, and Mary kind of started talking about it back and forth. And you know at this point she is eight years old. And, uh, um, she said, something's not right there. So we started looking at it and, and Bob, you know, sure enough, you know, we had, the way that we had cut an edge in there just didn't really fit, you know? So, you know, if we'd asked her, you know, what should we do with it? She might not have known, but she had an innate ability to know that something wasn't right. That's interesting. And, and, and so that's, um, I think that's you know that's you know the advantage to be able to go out into the field and see things and know that something isn't right, and I and I and I try to you know t- uh, talk this into all the finish work guys and the project managers. Um, you know we normally Jason Gold and I, Jason Gold's my shaper and he has worked for me since 2006 and he and I do most of our work together. Every once in a while I'll do a project where I've got to have another shaper, and so I'll, I'll I'll always, you know, say if, if something you're looking at doesn't look right, let me know. Let's talk through it. You know, same thing with finish work guys, with project managers. I and mean, Kyle Bounds, it works for me. He's got a very good eye. is the same way, you know. And and let's not ever go through what we're doing and see that something doesn't look right. Let's discuss it and figure it out. And um, I think that's that's the innate ability is. You know, there's obviously some guys that just have a great artistic uh, eye as well. I mean, Gil Hands obviously probably has, you know, was born with the ability to see that something doesn't look right or wrong uh, or does look right or doesn't look right, Um, and then the ability to know what to do with it. And uh, so I think it's definitely an advantage.
0: Is there a difference between an architect having that ability to discern right and wrong in a landscape and what fits versus the average golfer? Do you think the average golfer also ha- has that innate sense of knowing when things are in balance or not?
1: I, I always say that uh, golfers especially, you know, and it doesn't matter what your playing ability is, in my opinion. I always say that uh, the little things matter a lot because the golfers are not necessarily going to know that they're missing. Uh, or they're not going to notice that they're missing, but they'll feel it. And 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 that's what makes I think uh, an experience on the golf course just that much better, that much more great, is having all those little things in there that 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 are gonna make a difference. Um, you know, whether it be strategically, the way the game's played, um, or from a visual perspective. And um I I wholeheartedly believe in that. I think um um, a lot of golf, you know, most golfers are not going to necessarily be able to pick up what they're not seeing or what they're missing, but they will feel it. And, um, um, I think that's a huge part of what we do because it's, it's a part of the entire piece of the puzzle that you have to put together to make things as good as they can be. And, you know, and, and understanding, uh, what the golfer may miss and what they're seeing and what they're feeling, uh, you know, that's. A lot of that is what is learned, I think, Derek. Like, for instance, you know, elevation change on a property is something that, for instance, you can take a tree out to the left side of a of a slope, and that slope automatically becomes more profound. And knowing when to take that tree out or when to lay that slope down, the it's going to affect the golfer's eye in a way that makes them feel good or makes them like what they're seeing, is is. Largely, what you know, those of us practicing our best are doing, and that's making it a golf course make sense to the golfer. That's what I tell our clients a lot of times: is that what golfers will like to see um, and like to play is something that makes sense to them. It doesn't; they don't necessarily have to like it, you know. Because I think player that wants to move the ball left to right, or player that you know hits it right to left, or whatever, they may not necessarily see something and like it, but it makes sense to them. And when they see things that look out of place or something that doesn't make sense, that's when you get that sense of it
0: not fitting. You mentioned Gil and, you know, Tom Doak and Bill Corr and David Kidd and Mike DeVries and some of these guys who are highly critically acclaimed, their courses are outstanding and they're also, they're very visually appealing. I would, I would, Guess that you would say that they all have high high levels of artistry and, and aesthetic taste naturally probably, um, and they are critically acclaimed and also you know loved by the most of the players who play them. I'm interested to get your take on somebody though who might be maybe have the greatest sense of 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 style maybe the greatest stylist and and that's Tom Fazio and he is really well liked I think by most measurements by golfers who play his courses the average golfer across the country or across the world probably holds Fazio and his courses in high regard because of the way they look they're often visually stunning what's your assessment of fazio would you say that he has a naturally gifted sense of aesthetics
1: yeah there's no question i think um i think he um um always you know he was probably one of the in it was one of the best at making a, a, a golf course look like it made sense, and uh, and also, you know, they understood the impact of uh, how the golf course fit into the real estate landscape. Um, you know, a lot of times, you go as a as a player, I look at some of the things that are on Fazio courses, and I and I'll admit, I really like and Fazio golf courses for the most part. Um, one of my favorite golf courses when I was playing, um, competitive golf, um, in college is that, you know, is the golf club of Oklahoma, which was one of his early golf courses, uh, which is just outstanding to play and there's no real estate around it. So, you know, it was purely about building something that looked good, but, you know, also that played well, I played some of his golf courses that are, you know, purely real estate deals that don't make sense to me as a player, but aesthetically, you're, you know, you'll drive down the street and, and uh, you know, behind a hole that's going to houses and you'll see a really beautiful-looking bunker behind the green that pops visually, you know, from... And his golf courses look good from 360 degrees. Sometimes, uh, I think, um, and places compromised the way they played. But um, I think stylistically, he was great. Now, my wife will tell you as a player... That, and she she's not a very good player. She, I mean, she can break 100. Um, but she would rather play Pete Dye golf courses. Um, and uh, we we actually went on a honeymoon where we played a Frazier one day and we played a Pete Dye the next day. And she couldn't stand the Frazier because and she loved the Pete Dye. And Why Pete was that? Golf courses. Well, Pete Dye, in general, I think, builds golf courses that look more intimidating than they really play. And, you know, and, and Fazio had at times a tendency to do golf courses that were all about the art and they could become penal because of that. I, I play at Oak Tree in, in, in Oklahoma, which is one of Pete's somewhat earlier projects and uh, very, very difficult, but very, very playable. I mean, your, your average player is going to have a tough time breaking 100 there, but it's probably going to be an enjoyable round. And uh, those are two, you know, and the and the interesting thing I think diametrically opposed approaches to design were Fazio and 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 uh, and Pete Dye. And um, but I think Fazio is the maybe the greater artist. Pete was the um, master manipulator of the way he saw a golf course.
0: That's interesting you say that. Uh, I would I would have thought, and my assumption or my impression through experience and talking to other people and just hearing t- to general thoughts would be the opposite. That most people consider Pete Dye's courses way too hard. And if there's a knock on Fazio, it's that his courses, you know, lack lack strategy and and lack the ability to to function as a you know as a challenging golf course. Uh, and those are generalities, but you just inverted that and. and Said that that you thought, or at least your wife thought the opposite.
1: Well, I think I think um, you know. Obviously, those guys did a lot of work, and so you're yes. going to find a little bit of both in each one. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, in general, Fazio's courses. Uh, you know, I, I, again, you know, some of his courses are some of my, you know my favorites. I I, uh, I think he. Most of the work, especially those where they weren't hemmed in by real estate in, in some way, shape, or form, were really good strategically and from a um, a good player's perspective. And uh, when he got the way it was more about the way that the golf course looked, I think he had a tendency for the average player especially, I think that became a little more penal. Um, you know, it didn't give you... At times, his golf courses didn't provide you as much room. But again, you know that that's one of the things where it's really hard to be critical about an architect in general because each project is going to have its different sets of criteria and and so forth. But what I found overall is that uh, Fazio did a a number of courses that are extraordinarily good. um, and, and, you know, I've played some of his courses that are extraordinarily hard. Victoria National is extremely difficult um, and also very visually stunning. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I've also played a lot of his courses that are more resort-like or real estate-driven, where um, they a beautiful to look at but um, lacked a little bit of, you know, the fun for playing. And I think they... Generally, when I play with average players that play on those type of golf courses, they they tend to not like them as much because they're more penal. Pete, you know, had this ability to make it, to, and I think Alice, you know, implemented, you know, it was a big part of this, was to give the player options and plenty of room to play to where you could avoid um, his strictness and margins for error. Uh, if you're looking at, if you're going to a P-Dye golf course, most P-Dye golf courses, Oak would trick me in one really good example. If you're going there trying to shoot even par, you're going to have to hit shots with very, very small margins for error. Um, if you want to go there and, and if you're a scratch golfer and you want to go there and shoot 80, you've got all the room in the world to find the options to do that. And I think that's a big difference. Uh, now, visually, you know, visually, I I like Pete's courses maybe a little better than Trazio just because Pete played with your eye constantly. And I played the yes Senior Open Qualifier at Stonebridge Ranch and that's, I guess, at Stonebridge um, Golf Club uh, earlier this year down in in Dallas. And the way he moved your eye around and the way he made you kind of uncomfortable at times uh, hitting that more aggressive shot, you know, I just love the
0: way he did that. I tend to agree with you that I've thought that when I have conversations with people who say that die is too hard, I don't find that to be the case. I think there are, he gets stereotyped a little bit, and certainly there are golf courses that he created that that can be really difficult. If you go to Whistling Straits and you know you're hitting banana balls, you you might not finish the round there. But just but that's because of yeah. you know the way the course is maintained and, and the high grasses, but. Most of the time, you can kind of bunch your way around those golf courses if you want to. If you get in a bunker, yeah. you might. Yes, yeah, some bunkers can be pretty hard to get out of and pretty deep. But there's a lot of playability to his golf courses. So that's sort of an interesting. That's an ongoing dialogue that I have with a lot of people and and with the world of architecture about Pete Dye's legacy. And I, I think you're on my side with that, so that's good. We can take him. Uh, you have you had <laughs> some some pretty good success at at Pete Dye courses uh, during your your amateur playing career. Why is that? And you talked about how he guides your eye around the golf course. That's designed to uh, make it challenging for, for elite players, but you were, you could, you sounded like you had the ability to respond to that. Did that, is that because you understood what he was doing? You had to step up because you're also an architect.
1: Well, um, you know, I, uh, when I played at Oklahoma, we won the national championship on the Oak Tree East course, not the golf club course. And Oak Tree East, I think, is uh, even more visually stimulating that way than than the Oak Tree Golf Club, which is now called Oak Tree National. Mm-hmm. Where they, you know, Oak Tree National is where they played the PGA, played the Senior Open in twenty fourteen. Where about most of the, you know, where the major events have been. But we played the national championship my senior year on the East course and I'm trying to think off the top of my head any other places I've played tournament golf on Pete's courses. I
0: just... Did you play at the, at the, moment, the but... honors course?
1: Oh, the honors, yeah. And, and, and the ocean um, course, too. Um, Did you play... Well, I thought... I, you know, the, the mid-am at, uh, at Kiel was actually played on the river and the Cacique. Okay. Um, But uh, the honors course, yeah, I, I played really well in that US mid-am, and... Um, I think, and, and maybe that's one of maybe I was born with that, you know, I uh, the ability to see things in a in a more creative way, and so I've always been a player that worked the ball, and uh, so I could react to Pete's stuff because I could see the way he wanted you to hit those shots visually, and um, you know, and and I like actually played his courses better in the wind than I did without the wind uh, because he definitely made you think about uh how to use the wind on his golf courses you know there, there's a lot of talk about ground game architecture these days and i think pete is way way underrated for the way that he created ground game and um both off the tee and and the greens um you know, i actually i hold this and i you know, this may be sacrilegious to some, but I think there's more ground game at Oak Tree National than there is at Sand Hills, and wow. um, and the reason I say that is because when I play Sand Hills um, off the tees, you have to be aware of of how your ball can get moved off the tee quite a bit. Um, and uh a lot of times that movement that you have to be aware of is not so much you know moving it to the right spot, it's at sand Hills a lot of times uh the ground game off the tee there will move your ball to a spot you don't want to be in i, I found that a, a a lot like uh number what is it seven is a short part four at sand Hills where well, you know the ground game there tends to move your ball away from where you want it to be right um and um um there's you know, there's, I, I don't remember the holes as well as I should. I've only played there four times, but um there's a hole on the back nine where there's a big drop off down to the left. It's um probably
0: like tw- uh, twelve, that par four. Um if you hit yeah. on the left side you're just in a in a cave down yeah. there. <laughs> you can't see anything. Right. And
1: so, you know, um and then a lot of the shots that you're hitting into the games at, at Sand Hills um are elevated. Absolutely. Um, you're and so you're not really using, um, you know, approaches. And uh, the greens have more broad movement than, them as a general rule. Um, so on a P- at Oak Tree National, um, I'm constantly working the ball off slopes in the fairways. And a lot of times, uh, it's it's not just left or right. It's 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 uh, down. Um, you can use if you know where to hit the ball on, uh, at Oak Tree. You don't necessarily have to drive on a lot of holes because you can find these speed slots. There are a lot of them out there, and then the shots into the greens. Uh, every single green out there has got a way you can use the ground to get the ball closer to the hole, uh, and you have to be somewhat aware of how it can draw it away. But um, a peach, you know courses make sense to me visually, and and um, um, and I. And I, the thing I like about them, too, is they make sense visually from a strategic perspective as well. It helps, if you know what you're looking at, you take the time to study it, uh, it can help you play the course better. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Wingfoot, to me, is another example of a golf course that does that. Wingfoot West is visually a course that when you learn learn it, understand it, um, you can use those visual cues
0: to help you play you said something earlier about part of your process to sort of heighten your, uh, your level of, of artistry of working on your aesthetics and, and part of your learning process was noticing what, what other people had done, both contemporary architects and architects from the past and kind of using some of those little tricks or some of those, yeah. those cues that you picked up. I find that really interesting. First of, First of all, what have you taken from from die you spent a lot of time and we, we spent some time talking about it, and you spent some time playing his courses and are very familiar is that using ground slopes and and ability to move the ball on the ground into position is that something maybe that you've taken from die or are there other things
1: uh, well using the ground um definitely um had an impact on me i mean when i first started i think i mentioned earlier that you know um the design work I was doing was largely about the way the game was played. And so I, I think I would probably suggest that Pete was probably my biggest influence in, in how I created the ground. Um, and I was doing it in more subtle ways because, you know, um, you know, I didn't have the budgets to move tremendous amounts of dirt, and I wasn't getting the sites that had, you know, just tremendous uh, natural qualities to them all the time. And um, but it's the subtle things that uh, really matter. And uh, you know, Pete would move a lot of dirt around to throw your eye off as much as anything. And you know, he was, um, and you know, he's told me you know he was kind of trying to recreate that 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 Scottish look in a lot of ways. You know, uh, he said Western Gales was one of his biggest influences. You know, from a visual perspective, that in Preswick and. And and you can see that. And then he was also, I haven't talked to him, I never got a chance to talk to him about this, but I think, you know, um, McDonald, Rainer, and Banks were probably big influences on him as well. Uh, I've redone, I've, I've worked with a number, of uh, with a few courses that, uh, uh loop a up in New York City that I, I worked at for 18 years or 17 years now as a Banks course. Right. But you see a lot of p i in it. And, uh, or... Um, I should say that you could see that Pete took a lot from Mr. Banks. And uh, I think, you know, uh, Banks' courses probably were a little bit more extreme than Rainer uh, and McDonald did in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, yeah, you can kind of see that. Um, and so, you know, initially I wasn't exposed to Charles Banks and, and, and Rainer quite as much. I was exposed to Tillinghouse, um, you know, early in my career and um, uh, and I really liked the way that Tillinghast moved the ground. Um, he didn't do it so much in fairways, but his greens definitely created ground movement and um, the way that you can work a ball into a spot and um, uh, work a ball back into a location and so forth. But, but with Pete, um, it, it's the subtle slopes that you really have to pay attention to. All the other periphery, I think, was just there for him to create some noise to to really kind of draw your eye away from what really mattered. But visually, the way that he moved the ground, uh, his placement of bunkers, uh, his placement of ridge lines um, to where it made it difficult to really get distance control. Getting distance control on p Dye golf courses is is critical to playing them well, Mm -hmm. and he did a really good job a lot of the time with little bitty slopes here and there that made it difficult to really gauge distance.
0: This idea of Finding inspiration from from other designers. You just mentioned, you know, like Die probably took some inspiration from Banks and and Rainer and and Bill Langford for sure. And you look at Pete Die and, and maybe other people and kind of pick up a little trick here or there. Where is the line in architecture? It, I think what happened is when Pete Die started making golf courses, for instance, to use him as an example, that started to get national attention. A lot of people in the architectural world architects and designers began they weren't just taking little things from pete to high a lot of times they were just kind of copying whole cloth those ideas that that he put out there and the same thing happened to, to robert trent jones he caused a lot of people to kind of fall in line with that style of architecture and and now we see it uh people a lot of designers trying to emulating the naturalist look that Cor and doke and those guys uh have helped emulate and my natural instinct is always to say you know, let's, why are we copying each other? Well, like, let's not rip each other off. Let's be original. But other art art forms do it all the time. In music, music is famous for appropriating other other genres of music, and and it happens in uh-huh. art. It happens in film. It happens in every art form. There's always people that are taking inspiration elsewhere. In cor- but and I think here's the here's the point. I want to get your viewpoint on it. I don't, don't. You have to instead of just taking something like right now, like taking. Uh, a Seth Rainer hole, and just re- and now all of a sudden just reintroducing that and building a Seth Rainer McDonald hole, is not that creative. It's not that interesting. But if you take an element of that and and put it through your own artistic filter and twist it and make a new idea out of it, but it's still, it's riffing on on something like when 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 pop music takes. A, a a sample from a, a song that came out fifteen years ago. They use a bit of it, and then they lay beats over it, and they kind of twist it around. And but they're still adding their own creativity on top of it. Do you, I, I don't I'm not sure that I see that sometimes in golf architecture. Is that is that necessary when you're borrowing or taking inspiration? Don't you still have to put it through your own filter and, and own it?
1: Well, one of the things that will put it through your own filter as the site you're working on um, because you know you're if you're gonna if, you know if you've got a flat piece of ground and you're gonna move enough dirt and you know you can recreate um, something that you've seen elsewhere if you're working on a place you know on a piece of property um, that um, you know you really want to try to work something into that landscape uh, and one of the benefits I think I had early in my career that I still kind of draw from today and I have to be aware of today is that, you know, I I spent 10 years with with projects that 90% of them had little to no budget. And so, you know, I couldn't move a lot of business around. I was kind of forced to work with what I got. And so when you take an inspiration and and you have to adapt it to the site you're working with, uh, it's going to become your own in some respect, um, especially if you do it well. If you try to force uh, a design idea into a situation, um, or onto a landscape, uh, it's probably not going to turn out all that well. And so if it, if it ends up being good, then you probably put a lot of, you know, your own into it to make it fit that property. And I think that's one of the things that, that Rainer was, you know, extraordinary at. And given the fact that he really wasn't a golfer to speak of, you know, he wasn't as, you know, he wasn't a, you know, he lent, I'm sure he drew a lot and and was given a lot from McDonald early on, but in his own career when he didn't have McDonald around, one of the reasons his work is so good is because he was he had the ability to make those template holes his own in some respects and fit them to the site. And you know, Country Club of Charleston in my opinion is is something where he took a piece of property and you know, it doesn't have extraordinary topography an extraordinary land to work with, but he made everything there kind of fit on its own. And, uh, so when you're taking, you know, when you see something that you think is pretty interesting and and you want to try to incorporate it in what it is that you're doing, um, unless you really, you know, make an effort to copy it, um, I think it's going to end up being something of your own anyway, or at least that's just the way I see it, um. I did a golf course uh, in Dallas called The Tribute, where the, uh, uh, and th- when we were doing this, this is when Tour 18 was in vote. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my client wanted to do something um, similar to that from a commercial venture perspective that, that um, um, where we took, basically, I was given the chance to go to Scotland and spend a decent amount of time finding holes that I liked and bringing them over and uh and and so i and when i in the process of doing that one i realized that try to copy those holes in complete nature was you know really difficult to do for one thing and then secondly when i did it I, I, I was able to realize that this golf course has to flow not only uh strategically it has to flow visually and so you're going to take those ideas and kind of make them work with the site and make them work with what you're trying to do thematically throughout the entirety of the golf course um, I think any good golf course architect tends to have uh, the ability to make every golf course they do thematic I mean uh, from you know from beginning to end you're going to see things kind of fit together they make sense together and if you're copying too many things from too many different sources of inspiration you know it's hard to do and so, um, you know, the originality of architecture is something that, you know, and art is something that gets debated a lot in that, you know, there's not any original art anymore. Everybody's been influenced by something. I don't think there's, uh, you know, there's, um, even Picasso probably was influenced by something and, um, you know, and, and but put it out there in a way and for whatever reason it commercially became viable um it became- or it became um uh critically viable to where it, it exposed itself, but you know he may have been inspired by something that had nothing to do commercially or critically um you know, I, it, it could have been some form of art he saw you know or you know some form of nature that he saw and um what you you know nature I'm to speak of is one of those inspirations that I think is underrated a lot of the time people. I generally draw a lot from what I see just on the landscape, and um, I think you have to make it your own to make it work.
0: It's like what Woody Allen said, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. (laughs) Always always punch higher. Um, Well, now you mentioned the the tribute, and I'd like to spend the time, this is a good time to talk about it, Sister Course, Old American, which is... Mm -hmm. Based on early American golf courses rather than, than than British golf courses, and one thing I found really interesting about that, other than the course, um, I haven't unfortunately haven't played it, but it's really gorgeous to look at and it looks fascinating. On the website and, and I guess in the handbook for for it, your notes on this golf course are it's a, a sort of a masterclass in in how to strategically decipher a golf hole. So you have notes about. Uh, you know, if you hit here, it'll result in this shot. And this is the chipping area that you want to miss to. And uh, you even do things in, in your notes and in the architecture is something that I've always been interested in. It's that almost trying to get, you know, we're taught strategically, classic strategy is if you can take on a high risk, longer shot, perhaps you get, it buys you a better angle into the green or your reward is on the next shot. Whereas if you defer that, that uh, risk, the net resulting shot's going to be harder. But it looks like there are holes out at Old American that you actually would encourage a player to, to club down and play a safer shot to buy a better angle or a straight-on angle into the certain greens or certain certain positions on greens. So anyway, the notes you have on that, I mean, it, if, if you ever wanted to introduce an average golfer who hasn't thought strategically about how to approach a golf hole or a golf course, I would refer them to that. I mean, this is like a it's like a little miniature classroom.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. Actually, uh, uh, Ron Witten was going to come down and look at it, and so I'd written what's in that, what they put on the website. We we actually did a yardage book for them. They wanted us to do the yardage book for the course and put some of those things in there. And but that was uh, about one tenth of what I'd written about how to play the golf course, and I sent it to Ron just when he came down. It was like twenty something pages long, <laughs> and. It, uh, I guess I had a good bit of time on my hands about that <laughs> but um, I mean that's what I'm fascinated by I mean that's that's kind of where I came to golf course architecture is more in the way that the courses play and, and so I've I've had to grow into making you know the, the art and the style and so forth better and I think you know you mentioned earlier you know at what point did I feel like I had you know kind of gotten there and I feel like Especially and I, with Jason Gold, my shaper, and I, um, and, and Kyle that works for us as well. I, mean, I think we've gotten to the point where we we do really good work stylistically. And I mean, there's been points in the past where I think we hit it, but I think um, there were periods of time where, you know, like uh, uh, we'd do so, you know, something that was really fun to play, but, you know, I look back on it and I you know, this is crap stylistically. So we've we've kind of gotten there but but I came to the to the to the profession really more from you know, whereas another architect of our generation came to it more from a landscape style perspective, I came to it from a from a playing perspective. That's what I knew. And or it's what I knew more of. And uh, so I'm always fascinated in trying to you know, trying to educate people on how to play the game, you know, and I get, I get frustrated a lot of times when, you know, you hear someone say, well, this shot's unfair, you know, I don't think, I, I hate the word fair in golf course design, I like to think of uh, if something reasonable or not, you know, if, if you are given a reasonable option to avoid taking on that really aggressive shot, um, uh, you weren't forced to hit that really aggressive shot, uh, then I think it's reasonable, and and that's where strategy and design comes from. In my opinion, is is offering as many different meaningful or reasonable options to play the hole as possible. And and I think that's one of the things I grew up in an era when um, we were taught to play the game strategically. And a lot of it had to do with the equipment that we had because you know we were playing with a lot of balls and and steel shafts that weren't as good as the ones today. We're playing with wood heads and you know irons that. You know, I grew up playing with uh, Hogan PC irons, where the you know sweet spot was about the size of a you know half the size of a dime. Right. And and so you you had to play more strategically because you couldn't expect your equipment to perform um, the same way. And I get frustrated today that you know people say, well, we've got to make golf courses 7,800 yards long and and do this, do that, or, and so forth, because that's the way the players play today. And my opinion on it, and this is a little bit divergent from what we were just talking about, but you know, the, um, the, the way that golfers, in my opinion, will play the game and the way that the golf course is designed and set up for them to play. And if you give them the ability to know the different routes that they can take, um, you can educate them on how to find a way to play their game to fit that golf course. Over a period of time, you know, on PGA, on the PGA Tour, for example, uh, those players are going to adapt their game to fit the golf courses that they're playing. And so I, I like to see the game more about strategy. I like to see the game more about teaching players how to uh, learn to play the golf course instead of just standing up and just, you know, hitting um hitting it off the tee go find it and hit it again and you know and not think about what they're doing so you know I, i wouldn't necessarily say i've taken it upon myself to try to educate players how to play the game because i think there's um but i've in the courses that we've done i've tried to do part of that in design you know by giving them options and and maybe trying to expose the different ways you can play it and then i've um, and the few times we've had a chance to do, you know, the artist books and so forth, I like to try to maybe educate players on thinking about the way they're playing it because that's the beauty of the game. It's, you know, it's uh, there's there's certainly um, part of the experience is going out and seeing these great landscapes and seeing experiencing these, you know, these wonderful outdoor environments. Uh, the beauty in the game itself, the, the game part of golf is in, and, and how you think your way around the golf
0: course. Right. I'd like to come back to Old American in a minute, but but also follow through on this topic. It seems to me, and I, I'm sure you've been asked this countless times because because of how good of a player you are, and, and you are able to see golf in a way that most of us aren't. It seems like strategy is almost irrelevant to the elite players, to the plus players, especially to the tour pros where their angles just don't don't matter and strategy therefore is really only pertinent and important and interesting to you know single digit mid-handicap players who who actually do have to consider all of the golf course in front of them and not just something that's out 305 yards you know and in, anything between the T and 305 yards is irrelevant and most of the stuff on one side of the golf course is irrelevant as well but for the for the most players strategies in, in important in a way that it's not important to the to the pro players something that that's exactly what you're talking about right is is you have to ignore the elite level player in architecture when you're designing a course at some point don't you
1: well i think i think there's uh i think it's harder and harder to uh consider that player um and um um and then also make the golf course to where it is uh really fun to play for everyone else. it's uh you know if you're gonna uh, I think to truly build a golf course and, and 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 honestly, there's a little bit of old american uh there's a little bit of this in old American Justin Linden, I don't know if you on that man. you know justin was uh one of the you know premier strategic players uh, statisticians as how you, how you say that works, but um, um, I think the way that you can get around where you can make it to where the average player can enjoy the golf course and you can still challenge those better players, it, it becomes a little bit about what Pete Dye did in his time, and that's the strictness of uh, what you put in front of the better player because keep in mind the better player, if you're a scratch golfer um Uh, you know, you're a really good amateur player, you're a really good college player, uh, you're trying to shoot, you know, even par or better. And so your margins for error are going to be smaller than the guy that's trying to shoot 85. And so if you give the guy that's going to shoot 85 wider margins for error, you know, and, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be the wide conservative route that leaves a tougher shot in. I mean, it can be in a lot of different ways that you can make that work. But if you give that player wider margins for error and then you're more strict with the player that's trying to hit it 10, 15 feet, um, uh, then you can produce a golf course that does challenge the better player but is still playable and fun for the for the average player. The key to that, though, is that the average player has got to think their way around the golf course. And that's that's one of the difficult things in design is that um, you can design all these things that the average player can use, but if they don't know how to use them or they don't think about using them, then that golf course can end up being very penal and difficult because if you are at the same time creating very small margins for error for the uh, um, uh, for the better player, and, you know, and this, this just came to my mind, Derek, is that um, that's what we were talking about with Pete Dye. Uh, Pete created... Uh, very small margins for for the player looking to shoot even par, and um, but he gave you plenty of room to to shoot 85 if you wanted to, but you had to think your way around it. You didn't have to. He didn't give it to you. Um, you know, it wasn't just there and inherently there like a golf course that has very few challenges to it. He, there were challenges there, but you had to think your way around them. And I think that's one of the that's how you can make a golf course um, that can be both. But the, the tough thing is that you've got to educate the Irish player on, on how to use all of that. And so one of the things that Justin and I came to, because um, that golf course, it's a par 71, and from the very back tee, it's seventy one fifty thereabouts. And uh, when, when it first opened, the, you know there were a lot of players. K.J. Choi played there a lot for whatever reason. Uh, Rod Pampling, I think, still even plays a decent amount. And, uh, the thing that they liked about it is that it, it, it required them to hit, uh, very precise shots in order to play the golf course well. And so what, what I think is, is missing in the gate, in today's game as it relates to challenging those better players is a strictness of angles um and, and, and comp and and complementing that with distance control challenges. It's one thing to put a a, a uh a pin over a bunker um or on an angle with a bunker and say, well, best approach to this hole is from the left side of the fairway. Um but at the same time you've got, you know, twenty five yards of green behind that pin. Well, you you may have challenged the angle, but you haven't challenged distance control. And so I think design, um, to really challenge the better player going forward and to keep the game more strategic is going to require some changes in design. And I will be critical and say that I think a lot of the PGA Tour courses, um, and the way they set them up, um, and, uh, the way that they are, uh, uh, designed, um, uh, they're just long and hard, and and they they don't necessarily require the longest players to show that they can play golf ball without just using their length. So I think it's strictness of angles and strictness of distance control. That's you know that's what really challenges the better player. And I think you can have it in both courses, but it, I mean in the same course. But again, the challenge then becomes just you know educating the average player how to use all that.
0: It seems like what you just described as as a good. Tournament course, I guess is how you would put it, is a lynx course that uh-huh. with a little bit of wind. I mean you see occasionally when, when those courses get a little dried out and the wind is up, and guys have to think about their through distance on their T shots and not going in those uh-huh. bunkers that are a full stroke penalty that seems to be like you just said maybe maybe our last defense against technology and, and you know the length that, that players hit the ball is making them get concerned about runouts.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, 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 off the tee, you you know, to challenge the better player, I think firm conditions are, are vital, and I think you have to also then force them to hit shots at different, you know, you have to have distance control off the tee on certain lines, and, and what will make a golf course appear more penal to the average player is that in order to protect all those lines, you're going to have to do some things that um, whether it's with bunkering or, uh, ground slope and, you know, taller grasses. And I mean, basically, we're, de- we're, we're describing a links course. Um, or, you know, some of the older ones. And, uh, to where you, you know, you stand up on the tee, and if I hit it on this line, um, I've got 15 yards where I can hit it as far as I want. But otherwise, if I hit it 10 yards right of that, uh, I've got to run out at 310 or I've got to run out at 240. Um and uh you know, and then given where the pin location may be on a given day, that's where you have to think about where you're gonna position your ball. The only thing that I would say different about links courses and what I'm describing is Lynx courses um uh will tend to create some angles um to certain hole locations, but um if I had to be critical of some of the great links courses, I would say that still, um, there's still the, there's the yardage to carry something um, and then still stay you know the, the margin for error that you have and carrying that bunker and then not hitting it too far. Um, a lot of your links courses, you know, there's not a too far um, for a really good player. I mean, if I'm coming in with a 7-iron a and I've got to carry a bunker um, and I've got 25 yards of green. You know, beyond that, even though that green may have some movement to it, uh, and that's one of the ways that windscorers do defend that a bit is with some of the ground movement. But if if you've got if you're going to take on that angle, uh, you've only got maybe 10, 12 yards of green behind where that pin location was. That takes on a totally different meaning um, than if if there's a lot more green back there. And uh, I'm not. I think this is an evolution of where we go to defend the longer player. Um, I certainly do not agree that defending the longer players with longer golf courses. Um, I just don't think, uh, you know, uh, I, everything that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years has proven that if you make a golf course longer, all you're going to do is advantage the longer player. Um, unless, you know, um, you get to where you're being more strict. I think, uh, yeah, Think of it this way. If we were to play Colonial and Harbortown every week on tour, do you think that the same guys would be winning, that are, winning, you know, that are dominating the tour today? I don't think so. Um, they may be the same guys, but they're going to have changed the way they play the game.
0: The modern golf ball, the two-piece, driver head technology, shaft technology, launch monitors, does that – from a practical perspective, affect how you have to design golf courses now? Do you need to account for that? Do you need wider corridors? Do you need to buy more land? Or is it a a situation where such a small percentage of people can really take advantage of that, that there's no sense in changing everything just to accommodate 10 guys at a club?
1: Well, I think the, you know, for the average, I mean, for 99% of the golf courses in the world um, I don't think there's. I mean, I think you know the modern ball and and club. And I don't think it's more clubs than than anything for the average player because when I was growing up, um, every average player I played with weren't playing with you know the Titleist Tour Ball. They were playing Top Flight and Pinnacles and yeah. and uh, <laughs> which in some version is basically the same ball that we're playing today. And uh, you know the biggest difference between the Top Flight and the Pinnacle and all of that. Um, from the '70s and '80s, and and then the ball we're playing today is is a bit softer cover, and uh, I mean the inside technology is a bit different as well. But I mean, the the basic components of the way it impacted the way that an average player could play, especially, are really not a lot different because uh, it it produced low spin, and so the ball would run out more. Um, you know, was less affected by wind and so forth. And they were having those same challenges hitting shots into the greens with that ball that didn't spin as much. For the average player, um, I think the, the fact that we're playing with technology that allows them to hit it consistently solid a little more often and have better distance control only helps them learn how to play the game uh, better. Now, for the more elite player, um, I think what, you know, as much as anything, what I see is the players are choosing to play the ball they're playing because the design and setup of golf courses encourages that. Um, if you had a golf course um, where, if, again, if we were playing Town and, and Colonial and the like uh, on tour every week, um, I think you'd see players choosing balls that spun a little more. I think you would see them um, um, using equipment where they could hit um, – uh, they hit it a little bit different where they could work the ball a little bit more. I find it really difficult to work the ball with control uh, with the modern equipment. Um, and being someone that grew up working the ball a good bit, you know, it's it's a lot more difficult. I can't, I can't, especially cut shots. It's really difficult to hit a cut shot anymore, um, you know, that moves a lot. You know, Bubba Watson is... Is a freak in, the, in his ability to move the ball around like that, but not everybody's six foot four with arms that get under you know below their knees mm-hmm. that can that can <laughs> you know really generate the and manipulate the club the way he can, and so uh, you know when we we most of our work is really uh, you know around making sure that it's a fun golf course for mo uh, You know, 51 weeks out of the year. Uh, every once in a while, we're working on courses that may host something, and you know, we're thinking about the you know the, the longer player and and so forth. And what I try to do with design to impact the longer player as much as anything is, is is I'm trying to make sure that 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 longer player, the college kids today, hit it longer than anybody really, and and that's to get them to think um, about hitting something less than driver and in some cases even forcing them to hit something less to drive. When I get criticized, well, you know, you're taking them their strength out of their hands. I said, No, I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm making them show that they have the ability to play a complete game, uh, play the game in a way that they don't use their greatest strength. Um, and, and that that is a that's more of the mindset of challenging them to show that they have a complete game, not necessarily taking the strength out of out of their hands.
0: That was an idea though also, that, that die came up with, I'm sure others thought of it before him, but it's, you know, the adage distance is its own reward uh, in, in saying, like I mentioned back at Old American, <clears throat> often you would provide areas, safe areas, conservative drives that would actually have a better angle, whereas a longer drive uh-huh. might have uh, less of an ideal angle. So that's that's always fascinated me as, as a concept and wonder why we don't see more of that as a potential tool to mitigate some of the, some of the distance to try to induce a decision not to hit driver.
1: Well, there, there's no question, Derek, that, that um, one of the ways you can, you can, you can distract or you can pull the the better player's eye away from uh, hitting that aggressive shot, um, especially if it's more risk laden is um, to give them an option to where they don't have to do that. Or, you know, there's a last second, you know, flinch that they can throw into their hands that, that push that, you know, that balls that ball out. You know, if you've got water on the left and you bunker the entire right side of the, of uh, the green, uh, the more you, you frame the shot for the better player, the easier it is for them to hit the, the, the aggressive shot well. When you don't frame that aggressive shot as well and, when you give them plenty of room to miss, you're going to pull their eye away it's it's um I liken it to where if you are throwing darts at a board and uh, you've got a board that's you know got a three foot radius on it, um and there's nothing there but the board and it's just a white background. It's a lot harder to throw a dart in the middle of that and unless there are circles all the way around. you put circles inside and you put a big dot in the middle, it's a lot easier to hit mm. and and that's what framing of a golf course will do for the better player. The more framed it is, uh, the more that their eye gets drawn to the spot they want to hit it, the the easier it is for them to commit to that shot to see that shot.
0: And then just to get back to to the question I just asked, as far as you being an architect... Combating technology for from liability perspective, or when you go to these older courses and you're doing renovations, are you concerned that the ball is flying too far laterally and is becoming a danger? Do you have to? Is it? Does it mean you need more land, or do other things, (laughs) put up fences or something? You know, to keep the ball on the golf course, does that worry you?
1: Yeah, it does a little bit. And actually, I don't want to mention the course because um, I don't want to draw attention to it, but. Um, we did have a situation not long ago, um, you know, and, and one of the things that uh, uh, Quaker Ridge dealt with very publicly was um, the fact that there. I think it was on the second hole at Quaker Ridge. There's a house in there that was built um, uh, probably sometime after the course was built, um, but you know, still built a long time ago, and uh, you know, balls were more prevalently getting into this guy's yard. And we have a similar situation at one of the old courses that we work at. Um, but um, I, you definitely see balls that are getting more and more offline. And I get asked, you know, well, let's put a put up a fifty cents, you know, foot fence, and that'll solve the problem. And that didn't even come close because the the one thing that you see with the newer technology is balls are flying higher, and and they can be hit much further offline. And, and some of this is, again, mentality, though, because, and I don't want to be too critical of the way that it draws back to the PGA Tour, but, you know, the average player sees, you know, these guys just swinging from their shoes. And, um, you know, there's not too many Gene Littlers, you know, on the PGA Tour anymore. And, um, the harder you swing at it, the t- tends to be the greater the trajectory you're going to get and the greater the potential is for it to go offline. So, yeah, I think the dispersion rate is definitely wider. Um, We're seeing the average player hit it a little bit further. I don't think that's as big of an issue to me as the dispersion rate because you know I've seen balls end up in places I just don't know how someone got it there. Uh, But they are, and and so as it relates to newer golf courses, um, I think thankfully a lot of the newer golf courses that we're seeing today are you know not really surrounded by real estate to a great extent. Uh, they're also much more high end. Um, we're not seeing as many public courses that uh, um, are being built, unfortunately. Um, but the the width is the thing that that I'm most concerned with, not much so much the length. I I don't think that we have to you know use a great deal more length to build a golf course that the average player is going to you know, the at the average country club, unless it's going to be built for a tournament situation. But there's very few of those that, um, are being built, but I, on the older golf courses, the concern I have is the fact that a lot of these were built without width, And, um, you know, now we're having to kind of try to deal with that. And I, I don't know what the answer is there. It's, um, because there isn't more luck to get. And, uh, uh, I mean, the only the only plausible solution is to try to educate the player to play more like Gene Littler. Um, but um, you know, where does that go?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the great technology debate right now. And thinking of in terms of the golf ball, there are proponents who would like to do a cross the board rollback, and you know, force the manufacturers to take take a ten five ten percent off the golf ball. Others are in favor of bifurcation you know, people who just on the PGA tour to go to some kind of tournament ball and many, probably many more people would say nothing. Don't just don't worry about it, but you're not, you're not able to do that because you have to consider these things when you're on the ground and you're dealing with clubs and situations. Would you be in favor of any kind of adjustment to technology?
1: Well, I mean, look at it this way. If you, if you were to roll the ball back across the board, you know, and you put a ball out there that did spin more, um, and you still have your average 10 handicap, uh, that's trying to swing 105 miles an hour, that ball's going to go further offline. And, uh, so I don't know if, you know, from a, from a, you know, from a game wide perspective, if that really, uh, would have a, you know, a big impact as it relates to the, the PGA tour. Um, you know, Derek, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about the... Te- I mean, I know probably more than the average guy about the technology and so forth, but uh, that's a very complex, difficult question.
0: Yes, um, it is.
1: <laughs> and, and um, um, I, you know, I, I would tend to fall on the side that if we want to see the game more like it was 25 years ago, then I think design's got to change to some extent. I think setup has got to change to some extent. I go back to the fact that uh, the best players in the world are going to play the equipment. Uh, they're going to build their games around what gives them the greatest advantage to play the courses they're presented to play. And, um, you know, if you're playing golf courses where uh, there's not much between the tee and green to hit it 360 off the tee, that's what they're going to try to do. Um and, you know, I'm not suggesting that you have to make every hole such that you're taking, um, you're, you're minimizing the value of length, but you've got to value other things too. And, um, my criticism would be that the modern game at the high elite level, a lot of the golf courses and, uh, that are being played are valuing length. And it might not have been that those golf courses were designed to, Because, you know, a lot of these courses we're playing are over the age of Pro V1 and and the track man and everything else. Those golf courses just haven't been adapted. in some cases, I think it, you know, it's it's seen as sacrilegious to adapt Marion or, you know, Wingfoot or whatever it may be to really fit the way that it's going to better challenge the longer player without adding four or five, six hundred yards of length. But, you know, that's, in my opinion, if you want to make uh those older golf courses relevant again. Um I don't think they're irrelevant in in, in my opinion. And, you know, I think they um they they offer a different way to play the game. I'm at Oak Hills today down in San Antonio, which is barely is, is we can make it seven thousand yards from the very back tee. Um that's but you know uh that would be putting every pin in the back of the green and, you know, putting every tee, uh, every marker one step off the back. Um but but that golf course is still relevant. And uh, the problem is that, you know, for it to be like a PGA Tour event, I think, you know, as someone put it to me recently, chicks love the long ball. And uh, the average player likes to see guys stand up and hit at 350. Uh, there's That's the problem in a lot of ways.
0: I was thinking about this the other day. One of the kind of the coolest golf memories that I have was in the late '80s. I lived out near Denver, Colorado, and they had the international tournament there—the PGA tournament, the international with the Stableford scoring system—and I would go down there. And I remember uh, one year standing on one of the tees on the on the front nine, like the fourth tee, I think, and standing right behind Ben Crenshaw, right against the ropes, and he hits this drive. And Ben, as you know, is not a long hitter; he's probably on the the middle in the middle of the pack at that time, maybe even on the shorter side. But seeing the way he swung the ball, this is like 1988 with a wooden-headed club and a steel shaft, and just watching the ball, the sound that it made, the the compression, the way it launched off the club, was the most impressive thing I've ever seen. I'd never been that close to a professional hitting a drive before, and that ball probably went 255 yards, maybe at elevation probably farther, but it was the most impressive thing that I've seen. When you're at a golf course, you don't know... This is, and a lot, I'm not the first person who said this, but you, but you don't know if if the ball went 275 or 325. I mean, it's impressive either yeah. way. To, you know, we're kind of getting a little off track for architecture here, but I I do wonder. Just a, my final comment on this is, uh, play, I don't think anybody can tell how far the ball goes. They, it's impressive whether you're hitting it 275 or or 325. And I wonder though that since most players these days are hitting it upwards of 325, if that's if that's ruining the game if that's compromising the game the entertainment value at the, at the spectator level if, if people will start turning off their televisions because they're just tired of seeing the driver wedge game and in the long term if the PGA Tour is, is actually compromising their brand so that's, that's what I would be concerned about I, I know people do like to see the shot tracer yeah. and it's kind of impressive when, to see Rory, to know that Rory just hit that ball 345 but it's not an elemental part of the entertainment value
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the one thing to keep in mind is that, um, uh, and I hear this a lot, you know, I was at, uh, I was presenting a a master plan at a club recently and we were talking about a change I was making to one of the holes. And, uh, this is at a club where a college team plays and they were talking and I said, well, these guys can hit three wood over those trees. And I said, well, it, it's it's 300, you've got to carry the ball 335 yards to get it over those trees. I said, oh, they do that easy. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know. Um, the average on the PGA Tour today, and and, and I look at it more as the median. you know, but it's, it's around 291, 292, somewhere around in there. Those guys on most PGA Tour golf courses, the average out there is flying the ball somewhere around 270, 275. And uh, this is on the PGA Tour. You know, the average guy out there, um, uh, on average, flies at about 270, Now, all of those guys can probably reach back and get another five yards at that median level. Now, we've got guys out there that can hit it really, really long. And so the concern I have in the length is, um, you know, what it does to golf courses and how you defend length and so forth. Uh, is only one element of the way you look at that game because the, one of the greater concerns I have is um, what it does to the field. And, uh, you know, if you play um, a 76-, 7,700-yard 7, long golf course that's not really at altitude and uh, the design doesn't necessarily hem in along the longer players um, and make it a balanced challenge where they have to show the ability to do other things, You, in large measure, eliminated a lot of the field. And golf courses, uh, the game itself, you know, when I was growing up, they didn't do that. Everybody in the field, if you were on the PGA Tour, you had the ability to, you know, to play. And some of the best players back in that era were not long players. Corey Pavin, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite. uh, They weren't the longest players. And today, that's one of the reasons why Justin Leonard hasn't played actively in six or seven years, because... The way he played, um, kind of, you know, it just he just can't compete out there at the same level. And he's very competitive, and so um, I know his family had a lot to do with it as well. But, um, but you know, we've lost that kind of guy. Um, and uh, you see them playing well on certain golf courses, but. I think there's two things. One, I'm, I'm concerned about on um, the PGA Tour, the entertainment value being such that we're going to have the same guys, and you're seeing it, the same guys almost every week are up at near the top. And um, you rarely see, you know, an average length or even shorter length player uh, play well very often or with much consistency. That, to me, damages the overall feel of the game. Um, and then secondly is just the fact that we have to be aware of that uh, how that impacts the way that we look at golf courses that aren't held in PGA Tour events because the mentality, the perspective, is that everybody hits at 3.30, and there's no one on the PGA Tour right now averaging 3.30. You know, some, you know Kevin Tway at Oak Tree can stand up and hit one 3.30 anytime he wants, but he doesn't average that in part because um, he's still trying to play the game. Um, it's one of the reasons we don't see long drop champions that ever make it playing the game, but not yet. Those are the two things I'm I have a greatest concern about. I do agree with you that watching you know a, um, a Ben Crenshaw and you know there's a few different guys today. But if you watch a PGA Tour player and get up close and watch them play and the way the ball comes off, it's exciting to watch that and see that. I'm I'm concerned that we've developed a a populist and a fan of golf that. Um, really likes to see players stand up and swing from the you know toes and launch one hard and and um, you know when I go when I spend time at courses that we've worked on and, and I see these you know thirty something um, year old kids playing they're swinging as hard as they can and that's just kind of emulating what they see on TV
0: right well as we start to wind down we've been going at it here for a bit uh, I wanted to go back to Old American for one reason first of all. Two reasons. One, I'm, I really love the aesthetic of that golf course, and you know, it definitely, even though it's in Texas, had a had a real sense of some sort of blend of a lot of different early American architectural styles, like kind of a Long Island look, I guess, or a, a New England style of, of of golf. And was there a specific inspiration that you pulled for? Since we've been talking about aesthetics and artistry, was there a specific aesthetic that you 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 was on the forefront of your of your thoughts when you were kind of designing the bunkering and the shaping of that golf course,
1: Shinnecock and Pond Valley um, were probably the two that that we thought the most about. Um, you know, and, you know, from the the styling of the bunkers to the way that the edges were created, you know, and the frayed edges, um, and um, the way we got a little bit aggressive with some of the bunkering. Um, you know, from a depth and challenge standpoint. You know, for instance, uh, I call them don't hit it there bunkers. And, and Pond Valley, you know, certainly, I mean, you know, um, the bunkering there is uh, uh, interesting, to say the least. I mean, you can hit it in some bunkers there where your best next shot is to putt it back to the middle of the bunker. And, you know, we weren't necessarily trying to recapture that completely, but from a stylistic perspective, uh, Shinnecock, Pond Valley, um, a little bit of national, uh, national golf links actually, um, you know, avoided the fact that old American is on a big lake. It's uh, I think the second or third largest man-made lake in Texas. Um, but the property had a real similar feel to it in a lot of uh, uh, national. I-, I think those are the, you know, the- those are the places that we look at and, you know, a good bit from a stylistic perspective. I think um, uh, you can, can kind of go, you know, Maid Stone was another one that we really liked the look of and incorporated, you know, to some extent. Um, so we definitely, the Long Island influence and then Pond Valley was uh, probably most prevalent from a stylistic perspective when we looked at doing that.
0: The other thing I I thought of looking at this golf course was the, the era that it came up in. Now, the era that you came up in in the 90s, you were getting into the field when, at least American architecture was just going gaga. I mean, it was the boom days and uh, golf courses were going up at an incredible rate all around the country and everybody was busy. And that that was the environment that you came up in. And even into the early 2000s, it was still going pretty strong and new courses were being built. Now, a lot of harm was done from the 80s into the early 2000s from overbuilding and, and connecting golf too closely to real estate and frankly, just building poor golf courses in places where they shouldn't have been built. But old American to me, is an expression of, of something that we kind of miss now. It was an experiment in a way. It was it a project that allowed you to explore your imagination, to be creative. It, was, it represents like a potential of golf that existed at that moment in time because the economy and the possibilities and the uh, the cost of land and, and, every, and just the momentum that golf had that doesn't exist anymore. Now new courses are relegated to very specific projects and they're not you know they're 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 sort of bounded by frameworks and those frameworks are often usually positive but this golf course sort of like was the apex of creativity and and the the potential of what golf course architecture could be from from an, a no boundary perspective so I, and it made me think that like, that must have been very gratifying for you to be able to do that but also make you a little regretful and a little sad that, that that doesn't exist anymore because that's, that's how you came up and you were building new golf courses for much of your career. The positive is now you've got to work with some really historic old clubs and, and be introduced into old architecture, which must be very gratifying as well. But do you, do you feel a sense of loss as well since you actually had a bite of that apple?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've mentioned this to a number of people at times. I was actually uh, um, had a long conversation about this with David Kidd. Uh, and Bill Kubley, um, we went to. He and I, uh, David and his wife, and and me and Bill Kubley and a handful of other guys went to Sandhills Hills for a couple of days uh, last summer, and we were just sitting around at dinner talking about the state of the industry. And I was fortunate that while I grew up in the '90s, one of the other things that you know, I'm starting my own firm without uh, really having. Work for someone, a lot of the projects I had a chance to get were renovations um, and, in some cases, restoration type uh, approaches. So I was a little bit more equipped when the market did turn to renovations and restorations. But, you know, I was lamenting to those guys that I don't know if I'll ever get to you know, do another new golf course with um, the ability to just express freely. And um, now, David is, you know, has developed a reputation where, you know, he's been able to do that. And he got to do the course up in uh, Wisconsin recently. And, you know, obviously he, he still gets to, and he he's willing to travel around the world and he's got that reputation. And, uh, but for me personally, I mean, um, I got to do um, a couple of projects after Old American. One was in Acapulco where we had, um, the ability to take the old Pierre Marquez course at the Fairmont Resort down there, and we were given about 180 acres to kind of do whatever we wanted to, and that was a lot of fun. And then we did a project in China where we were given some similar things. Uh, as you probably have heard, the only downside to working in China is they don't take care of what you have done. But Old American being the last one I've done in the U.S., and you know, and I, I, I'm i thankful that you know I'm at an age where Um, we've done fairly well. Um, and my wife is really good at making sure we don't spend too much and, and we're okay financially. And we'll, you know, we've got some opportunities out there, but, you know, just personally and professionally, um, I'm a little bit saddened in that I may never get to do another one. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a bummer, but the good thing is, you know, I, I, Every once in a while, we run across the ability to do a really cool, uh, restoration project, like we just finished at Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, which was an old Perry Maxwell, Alistair McKenzie design that was a lot of fun to do. And the next year, we're going to get a chance to kind of reconstruct the golf course at Green Tree Country Club out in Midland. And I think that's where I'm going to find my, um, you know, my fun is in is in reconstructions. Um, I might get to do, you know, some more like a green tree where I can take the property and kind of recreate it. But the the new courses where you get to go walk a piece of land and you get to envision and think about it and, and you know, how can we turn this into something really special? And, you know, those are very few and far between and, um, and really seem to be going to the same guys. And, and I'm not the least bit... Uh, um, I can't think of the right word, but I mean I'm not uh, jealousness. I, I guess I am a little jealous, but I'm I'm not uh, um, those guys. You know, uh, Gil and, and Bill and Ben. You know, they've they've earned that right. Um, but you know, we'll see.
0: So at this point in time, would it be fair to say that you would prefer a like a brownfield site or a stripped down course, where it's something where you can strip it down and, and recreate an existing property? Over the chance to work on a like a top one hundred historic golf course with great pedigree. Uh, now I realize as I as I framed a question that way, you you're gonna uh, you're gonna say both, or you know you're not gonna turn down uh, the, the latter. But does that hold a little bit more appeal to you from an artistic standpoint? To be to be expressive is to have an opportunity, even if it's not a virgin piece of land, to to at least build something that is is entirely your creation versus a a. a re-enhanced version of an old dead architect
1: well for me um you know i grew up playing old courses uh you know i grew up playing um i was a um i think they called it a junior member i think it was really just a way to get some money at east lake before they redid it and um and i was fortunate when i was a kid that we played a lot of our junior golf on old ross courses and uh, then when I came to Oklahoma, I got exposed to Maxwell a lot. And then playing amateur golf, you get exposed to Tillinghast a lot. Uh, this is not a uh, politically correct answer, but for me, it is true in that I really love working on those older golf courses and exploring the, the different styles and, and, and how they built them and how we match that into the way that it functions today. And uh, in learning from those old guys, I learned a ton about um, subtleties and design at Oklahoma City. And so for me, that's, that's a different kind of thrill than the ability to go out and be able to create something completely uh, of your own making. And um, it goes back a little bit to what we talked about in terms of inspiration. My inspiration just still is, you know, other than maybe Pete. And, you know, a lot of my inspiration are those older guys. And so... When I look at doing something and and you know new or the ability to take an older course or um you know something that we're going to have a chance to recreate and kind of put it on into, I'm really kind of drawing back to that old you know classic style anyway um it's, it for me it really is both I really enjoy doing both um and, uh, if I never get to do another new course, um, you know, from a virgin piece of ground, you know, I, I'm fine with that, but I'd love to. Um, just because there's a different process that even goes into taking a raw piece of ground and creating something unique and new and that's your own, um, uh, versus taking an older golf course like we did at, at, uh, Acapulco and in China and like we're going to do at Green Tree. Um, you know, because there's already something new and it's a little bit different because you're rethinking of what's there versus, um, you know, what you want to do. And with a virgin piece of ground, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's totally, uh, in most cases, it's pretty free to, to create in in its own way. But, um, so I'm, I, I love what I get to do every day and, and I am fortunate that I enjoy it all.
0: Uh, you built uh, some, I guess they're called innov- innovative or short courses or, or creative concept yeah. courses. You you did at the Jimmy Austin course for the University of Oklahoma, kind of a four-hole mini-golf course built within that practice facility, a place called Proving Ground in Dallas. You built the uh, Ocala Preserve in Florida, which can be played mm-hmm. as like 18 par threes or six longer regulation holes, so there are flexibility uh-huh. on this podcast i'm sure you've heard we talk about this concept a lot of a- adapting golf to, to a smaller scale making it shorter more convenient more accessible breaking the boundaries so to speak it's just as a way as a way to to make it more enjoyable more fun more accessible uh ma- make it Help I think that style of golf helps make golf become more central to people's lives rather than this disinactivity that takes up so t- so much time and money that that people just you know can't really af- afford the time and, and money to to play it anymore so the question is what have you learned about these short courses and what do you think their role is in golf going forward and how how did how does this represent a path forward economically? Are, are these golf courses, does it does it cost more money to build interesting golf features that you would find on these golf courses?
1: Well, um, you know, there's there's two different ways to look at them. And, and really, I think you kind of have to look at it from both perspectives in order for it to be economically viable um, in a club setting. And one is practice, and then the other is play. And um, from a practice perspective, a lot of the short courses that we've done, um, not including necessarily the one we did in Ocala, are also uh, outlets for everybody at the club to practice. And so we try to build them to where, um you know, like for instance when we do these four hole, three hole, five hole, we're gonna do a six hole short course at, at Rumson Country Club one day, hopefully. It, we don't build tee boxes. It's it's uh, it's less about um, having a defined way to play and more about just creatively going out there and having fun, and uh, and then being able to practice a lot of different shots. The practice element is what makes them economically viable. I think in a lot of these clubs because it makes more sense. It's not just one outlet, um, but selfishly I like to see that they are have the ability to um then introduce the kids to the game as much as anything I, you know I, we did a four-hole short course at uh, Willowbrook Country Club in Tyler and um I, we uh, we did it actually before we did the, the 18-hole golf course and we did the 18-hole course in two nine-hole phases and so over the last four years I been down there a lot since we finished the short course and and almost every time i go there uh the pros have 10 12 15 kids out there you know you can see parents with their kids out there and um that's the element of the short courses uh for that is what's going to i think help produce the next generation of golfers that's going to help sustain the game um so there's that part of it the other part of it is is land use and um uh the one we did in O'Cala was basically the developer Kim Justin said we've got fifty acres. We want a golf element. We want it to be unique. You know, what can we do? And that's we came up with uh building an eighteen hole part three course, but within that, um, you can play from A T past the green to another green and there's um you know, you can play it in a bunch of different ways, but the basis of it is a six hole course that if you played it three times is uh par 70 that's about 6,600 yards long. You can play it in another way where it's like 6,700 yards long as a par 72. And um, I hope that takes off because that gives the ability to maintain um, the ability to go play something unique and fun on less acreage. I think that's um, in the time perspective is really what you see at a lot of these places too because the thirty five to 55-year-olds today just don't have as much time. I mean, there's a lot more, uh, you know, the kids are, you know, pulling you in a lot of different directions. Work pulls you in a lot more directions, I think, than it used to. And so the time element, as much as anything, allows people to go out and experience playing the game, keep them in the game. Um, so I think these facilities are going to do as much to keep people in the game as they do to introduce players. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think they're, you know, they're they're fun to do as an architect, especially with the approach we take with them, because we're not trying to define the way you can play it. We're trying to create as many different ways as you can play it, and and that's a lot of fun to do.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I I hope this is a a trend that we keep seeing. And as I've said before, I I want to see this trend break away from resorts and break away from private clubs and enter the public course. Uh, universe of golf a little bit more aggressively, yeah. and hopefully that's what we'll see over the next decade.
1: I think that's you know that's going to be the harder side of it Derek, because the economic viability of introducing it into the public environment is uh, is going to be the challenge. I mean we uh, we recently looked at a public project that we ended up not we're not going to do, but I looked at it and moved a couple of holes around a little bit to be able to build a three hole short course that. That they dedicated solely to kids, and um, one of the challenges that kept coming up when we discussed it is how do we pay for it? And you know, is it something like the driving range? Um, well, excuse me, like a short game area and a putting green that most public courses try to have that they don't charge for. Um, but if you take that and you you know add six seven acres of maintenance beyond that, and and you don't have any way to pay for it. Uh, that's a challenge. And I think there's a way to, um, I think what we, and what I think there that we've got to do, that we do with other public entities like museums and and parks and and so forth, is to get the private sector involved to help support those through um, fundraising. And, uh, you know, most public museums uh, have their own nonprofit fundraising arm. And why can't we do that with golf?
0: we need some big golf endowments so for for all the billionaires looking to shelter some money for for the future think about short courses okay what architect would you pick as your partner for a two man best ball tournament
1: uh Steve Smyers
0: that's good he said you too when I asked him that question
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I said well in part that's true and in part I listened to that podcast and I didn't say that um yeah, Steve's a hell of a player and um Jim White um I actually talked to him yesterday. He's getting a little bit older, but you know, ten years ago he he could play. Um um I think I think Jim's in his mid seventies now, but um uh, he could play. Uh Chris Cochran's a good player that works for Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Uh John John Sanford's a, a good player um you know there's uh the, the downside of what we do is uh you know we we don't get to play as much as you know we'd like I, I'm trying to build more of my site visits especially the UFC work we've done around playing I'm gonna play with the superintendent at Oak Hills today but um it's hard to keep your game up because um um you know the industry today is it's uh it's time consuming I mean it's uh you know, back in the uh, early two thousands, I had three golf courses going at one time, and uh, um, and that's all I really had to work on. And I, you know, found the time to play, and you know, probably shouldn't have played quite as much as I did, but um, <laughs> it's hard to play.
0: I hear you. I hear you. Okay, let's say it's up to you. You're the king of the USGA. We're going to go to a US Open rota. We're only going to go to four courses keeping in mind, maybe our conversation earlier about what kind of golf courses are desirable to include the whole field, where all different types of players have a chance at competing on these golf courses. What mm-hmm. are your What are your four courses that you're going to rotate around the U.S. Open? Uh,
1: well, irrespective of all the other stuff that goes around, you know, around the Open and the access and all that, Pine Valley would be one for sure. Uh, probably as good a golf course as any, but embodies what I talk about in being balanced where the whole field can play and it doesn't, you know, length isn't a huge issue. Um, that's a thats a good question. Um, I think uh, um, I'm really interested to see how LACC North does. Um, yeah. Because I really like what they did there. And that's another golf course that, you know, there's a little bit to that course where length can be an advantage, but I think overall it gives you enough ability to score if you're not a long player. Um, I think that's one I'd put in there. Um, um, kind of selfishly, I'd like to say play one of those fields and it kind of embodies that, but, um, a little bit, you know, it's, uh, it, it had its day when I had a lot of tournaments, but that type of golf course is is one. Um, you know, shecock to me is uh is a golf course that i I really think um it it should be you know and and have played it a number of times and it 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 should be the you know a, a one of those type of golf courses i think there's i'm not necessarily i didn't necessarily like the way that they set it up for the last open but um I think there's something there Marion is another course that that, that I that I really like in that regard. So those those are probably the the group. I mean, there's a whole bunch of others that you know I'm just not thinking about. But um, those are the kind that I really like.
0: You know, Oak, Oakmont did an incredible job of yeah. spreading the field around. I mean, yeah. if, if you look at the last U.S. Open, you yeah. had Furyk, uh Brandon yeah. Grace, Kevin Na, Zach Johnson in the top ten. And of course, Dustin yeah, yeah. Johnson wins it. So um, Shane Lowry, Scott Piercy, i just looking this up. Like that, that golf course allowed all kinds of different style of golf to contend.
1: Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I actually got to play the U.S. Amateur there in 2003, and uh, um, that's one of my top five in the U.S. Uh, you know, and and that's that's uh, that might be as much as anything that may be the epitome of a good U.S. Open course in the, in the U.S.
0: Okay, last one. You gotta know it's coming. <laughs> Favorite modern golf course not designed by you.
1: Um I I'm gonna give you two. Uh Sand Hills and Oak Tree.
0: Nice, okay. Oak I, Tree. I, I yeah. kinda
1: did some redo at Oak Tree, but you know, we tried to put it back to the way Pete had left it. Um those are two golf courses I could play every day.
0: Now, Oak, that was originally built in, what, late 70s?
1: 76, it
0: opened. Do you notice that the architecture at Oak Tree is different than what he started doing in the early 80s, maybe beginning at Sawgrass?
1: Um, Well, Sawgrass, to me, is, um, you know, you take away the stadium element and so forth. It's very much... um, early Pete guy-like, you know, some of it, but, uh, it's definitely different. I mean, it's, it's got, you know, he didn't move a, a a whole bunch of dirt there. Um, you know, he certainly created his typical shapes and so forth. And, and I love the look of it, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, compared to like the course up at French Lick, you know, it's, it's, um, night and day, but, um yeah, oak tree's certainly one of those early peat dies and I think sawgrass, you know, to a large extent. You know, when you play it and you don't necessarily feel all the stadium effect so much, I think it's very similar.
0: Trip, thanks for doing the podcast. It was really entertaining. I enjoyed that a lot.
1: I did too. I I'm um I've I've wanted to do it 'cause I've I've really enjoyed listening because I drive around a lot in Texas and Oklahoma and that's where I get how I get from one got to the of, next. Got a lot yeah. of open
0: space to cover there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I could be of service, and now you get to listen <laughs> to yourself. All right. That's great. Okay. Thanks, bud. Okay. That was great stuff from Trip Davis. The candor, the honesty, the openness. It's very refreshing to hear Trip talk about how he approaches design, the way his design process has evolved, the way he... Has had to, or has felt like he's had to hone his artistry and his sense of aesthetics and his honesty about lamenting the fact that he may not get a chance to build a brand new course again. Hopefully, that's not the case. Hopefully that hopefully there are new opportunities for for him and others. But you know, there's definitely got to be a sense of loss there. If you told a movie director this was his last project and all he could ever do is, is editing, you know, he'd be sad too. But anyway, I'm not going to keep you any longer. That was a long one, but thanks to Trip Davis for joining me. That was a fantastic discussion. Best of luck to you going forward. If you have not heard yet, I am involved in a new podcast called The Good Good Podcast with my friends Rod Morey and Adrian Lowe, where we will get together every week or two and discuss happenings in the world of golf, golf courses, travel, golf entertainment, golf podcasts. It is a roundtable of golf-related thoughts, and that podcast can be found at TalkingGolf.com. Now, I've been previewing this for a little while. The Talking Golf Network of Podcasts is home to Feed the Ball, a new podcast called The Course Reports, a superintendent show hosted by Kurt Tyrell, Uh, the Risk and Reward betting show hosted by John Evans, and, of course, the podcast that started it all, State of the Game with Rod Morey, Jeff Shackelford, and Mike Clayton. If you have not visited the new website yet. Take a look at that. It's TalkingGolf.com. As always, you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Let's get out of here now. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Trip Davis. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.